Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis during his time as teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We desire to see all who are Christ followers grow in faith and maturity through the use of this podcast. Here's this week's message. What a wonderful way to begin looking into your word this morning, Father, to hear a song about abandonment to you. I will give anything. And Lord, I know that that's the heart cry that you long to hear, the open heart, the open life, the teachable spirit. So now, Father, we pray that you might teach us from your word about life, that you might instruct us with its wisdom, you might give us direction and discernment by its pronouncements. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. I'd like you to take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to the book of Ecclesiastes, like Dan said. Uh, we're starting a new study here today in a very interesting book, as you're going to find out. A book that has a lot of challenges that are involved in it. You know, of all the questions that one could ask in this day, probably the most perplexing, the most unsettling, and yet the most pertinent question is the philosophical question. Some of you like philosophy, some of you are more practical-minded, and philosophy is kind of an unsettling subject to you, but the fact is, the most pertinent questions in life, the beginning point of all our lives, as far as the meaning that's given, comes from questions of philosophy, uh, such as, uh, who am I? That's a pretty strong question, isn't it? Who am I? Or how about, why am I here? Or where am I going? Or um, for some of you up in the balcony, what's the purpose of your life up there? <laughs> what's my ultimate destiny? Those are, those are deep questions. And a few people seriously entertain such questions because they take a long time. And they take a lot of soul searching and wisdom. And sometimes pain. And yet these answers, and the, and the, uh, or at least these questions and the answers that come from them are the, the core of life. How we answer those questions ultimately works out in fingers and toes and lips and hearing and perspective and priorities and expectations about what life is all about. You know, this morning, I'd like to begin by entertaining for you a very heady philosophical question. It is probably the question of all questions, and that is, what is the meaning of life? What is the meaning of life? Now, if you were a young person, a toddler, uh, an elementary school student, you've already been given a very simple answer to that life and uh, what the meaning of life is, and you've sung that when you were growing up. In fact, I'd like you to sing it with me, okay? Because here's the meaning of life for an eight-year-old. Ready? Row, row, row your boat. Come on. Gently down the stream. Come on. Merrily, 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 merrily. Oh, so that's the meaning of life. Life is but a dream. That's all it is. And what you do through life is you just row, row, row your boat. It's just monotony. Day in and day out. While you try to grasp the elusive dream of life. Of course, as you get older and the questions get harder and life gets testier and so on and so forth, it's easy to become cynical about life. 
I like the Jewish writer Shalom Alechem, who undoubtedly in a low moment was asked, what is life? And he said, life is a blister on top of a tumor which is on top of a boil. <laughs> in Life magazine, they asked a number of years ago, what is the meaning of life? And devoted the entire issue to the answers. And so you had poets and presidents, you had philosophers and sports legends, and you had ordinary folks like you and me from all walks of life have a shot at what the of life is. Here's what Jose Martinez, a taxi driver, said life was. He said, we're here to die. Just live and die. I do some fishing, take my girl out, pay taxes, do a little reading, and then get ready to drop dead. You know, that's the kind of guy I'd like to run around with, wouldn't you? He's just brimming with meaning and purpose in his life. Well, beyond Jose and beyond Shalom Aleichem and beyond Life magazine and all the rest, there is a book that reflects a lifetime of soul searching on this question, what is the meaning of life? And you have it before you. It's the book of Ecclesiastes. You may not have heard a lot of messages preached out of Ecclesiastes, and there's a reason for that. It's a formidable book. It's a real challenge. It doesn't have a clear plot line at points. You find yourself meandering at places and you're not sure where you are. But it is this, by everyone's estimation, it is a book of pure philosophy. And that's what we want to look at in the weeks to come. We want to start with the question, who wrote it? Who wrote this book? Well, the book itself does not tell us. It's not, at least not explicitly. Jewish tradition tells us and affirms that Solomon, the king of Israel, was the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes. There are some modern scholars, however, who have come to question that for a number of reasons because of the veiled representation. Look at the book and they say perhaps behind Ecclesiastes is a writer or writers that are unknown who use Solomon's life and use Solomon's wisdom to address the issues of life in a particular day and age. And uh, whether it was Solomon himself or whether it was just an unknown writer using the wisdom of Solomon, certainly Solomon is the focus of the book. And you'll see that reference time and time again. In fact, at the very beginning, it says in chapter 1, verse 1, it says, the words are the wisdom of the preacher. Then it says, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. The wisdom of this man. I'm going to apply it to the issues of life. He tells us that right at the very outset. Now you know Solomon. Some of you remember about Solomon's life. He's the only man, at least that I know, who was ever given a blank check by God. He was the ultimate name it and claim it preacher. Because God came to him, it says in 1 Kings 3, in Gibeon. And it says there that the Lord appeared to Solomon and He said, ask what you wish me to give you. I'll do it. How'd you like that? How'd you like God to come to you and say, whatever you want, just ask me. Name it and claim it. And Solomon says, said, give thy servant an understanding heart to discern between good and evil. And it was pleasing in the sight of the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing that he might get wisdom. And you know, it was out of the heart of wisdom that Solomon led the nation Israel to unrivaled greatness and success. We know that as we follow his kingdom and the expansion of his kingdom. Never before or ever again would Israel have such power and splendor. Solomon himself became internationally acclaimed. The queen of Sheba came to the nation of Israel and looked over all that Solomon had built and constructed 
and the society that he had elevated with this wisdom, and she said the half of it has not even been told yet. For the nation of Israel, politically, economically, and intellectually, Solomon's reign in Israel was the fullness of time. But, there always is a but, isn't there? Unfortunately, the very wisdom that led Solomon and Israel to greatness also in time led him astray from God. Power corrupts, the old saying goes, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. It was the same for wisdom in his case. Sad to say, but the wisdom that Solomon used to serve God in time became a self-serving end in itself. And the whole rest of his life, especially the latter years of his life, became a life that spiraled downward in all kinds of dead-end pursuits as he tried to grab life apart from God. It didn't work. So he experimented with false gods. He intermarried with pagan wives and blended his culture with the pagan nations around him, and Israel lost her uniqueness. He indulged his flesh to the full, to the extreme. And he ruined the unique nation his wisdom had previously built. And when he died, that nation crumbled into two warring factions. That was the legacy that he ultimately left. Now you know, there's no biblical record of whether Solomon ever repented in his later life except for this book of Ecclesiastes. And if you give assent to the fact that he is the author of the book, then as you read through it, what the book becomes is a public record for all to see, kind of like David did when he sinned with Bathsheba. There was a psalm that was a public record of that psalm. Ecclesiastes becomes a public record of the many vain pursuits of his life. And at the end of the book, it becomes his public pronouncement that there is no life apart from abiding with God. Ecclesiastes could very well be Solomon's white flag of surrender to God. A public acknowledgement for all to see of life's vain pursuits and the humble re-recognition by the smartest man who ever lived that life without God is in fact no life at all. You get little hints of that through the book. If you'll turn to chapter 4 and look at verse 13 as he's going on in his discord, you wonder if he just dropped this in just to kind of let you know where he's been. When you come to verse 13, it says this, A poor yet wise lad is better than an old and foolish king who no longer knows how to receive instruction. You know, that verse touches my heart. Sometimes you worry that the legacy of your life is that there comes a place where you turn in the road and you no longer are open to real instruction and real truth. In fact, the majority of the end of your life is just simply trying to convince everybody that you're right. And that's the way Solomon was. And it ended tragically for him. And as I said, this legacy, this book that he leaves for us to read is not an easy book for the casual reader. In fact, it looks like a ponderous collage of random thoughts and disconnected ideas if you walk through it. But I want you to keep in mind three things that helps you anytime you look at any book. In any book, you, you need to know the theme, you need to know the general outline, the contents in the middle, and the conclusion. And in that sense, Ecclesiastes makes sense. So for instance, what is the theme? Well, the author states it right up front in verse 2. He says, vanity of vanities. All is vanity. And we'll talk about that in a moment, but that theme is repeated 38 times in the book. He'll come back to that 
theme again and again after he talks about life's pursuits and he'll just throw up his hands and say, it's all empty. It's all vain, this life under the sun. So how about the general contents? Well, generally you could call it the research that he, that he has done, the experimentation that he has been involved with to support that thesis that he gives at the beginning. So it becomes a collection of personal tests and personal observations that Solomon has been involved with throughout his life. And now looking back over his life, he wants to help you understand how he came to that treatise, that theme that he gave at the beginning. So for instance, look at chapter 2. This is one of the tests of life that he, that he gets involved with at a certain point in time. He says, I said to myself, come now and I will test you with pleasure. <laughs> now for Solomon, that means all pleasure, as much of it in every facet he could participate in. And he's going to try to extract, as many do today, but not nearly with the resources Solomon had at his command, the pleasure of life. And does it hold meaning? So look what follows. Here's how he explored pleasure. Verse 3, explored it with his mind. How to stimulate his body with wine. You want to drink? Let's drink. Let's really drink. So he did. Or if it's material things. Verse 4, he says he enlarged his works. Verse 5, he made gardens and parks. Verse 6, I made ponds for water for myself to irrigate forests. Verse 7, I bought male and female slaves. Verse 8, I collected for myself silver and gold, treasures unending. Verse 9, I became great. I had it all. And I explored it all. Verse 10, and all that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. And what did he find in that extreme pursuit of life? Well, look at the end of verse 11. And behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind, and there is no profit under the sun. That would be his sense of the end point. And what's his conclusion? Well, he gives us his conclusion in chapter 12. It won't mean as much now looking at it, but I want you to turn there because in chapter 12, he ends the book after all these pursuits and telling us what they're, what's involved in them and what he did and how far he went. He, he kind of harkens back to a generation. In fact, let me tell you, you wonder what the word Ecclesiastes means? The word is from a Greek word from which we get the word church. The, the ecclesia or ecclesiastical. Now, all those terms mean to call together an assembly to hear something. And that's what he's trying to do for young people, for middle-aged people, for teenagers, for those married. He's wanting to call you together and say, listen, I've done a lot in life. I've had so much. Come here and let me tell you about it. That's what he does. And when he gets to the end, he says, and I want you to know the conclusion. The conclusion is this. When all has been heard, it's fear God and keep His commandments because this applies to every person. Every person. For God will bring every act to judgment. Everything which is hidden. Whether it's good or whether it's evil. That's my conclusion on life. But He's going to tell us how He got to that conclusion and that conclusion will be more powerful. Now this opening message is not going to be fun. Alright? So hang on a little bit. And I don't mean it's, it's depressing, but if you're a philosopher, it can push you there. It can push you to that end. You know, our day has been described as the age of soundbite living. We live in an informational age. We're about to break open a whole new world 
with all kinds of gadgetry that just absorb massive, massive amounts of data and they, they spill it on us every day. And we, we're, we're moving faster and faster trying to make sense of what all that conglomeration and mind-boggling data means. You know, many have observed in the midst of this informational age that our information, though it's broadening, our understanding of life is lessening. You could put it like this, we know a little about a lot of things, but it's only a little bit. Young people know a lot about sex because they have it sprayed on them every day, in every way. You know, the other day I was on my Nordic track, I'm trying to work out some. I turned on the TV, I looked at MTV, and I just watched it for the 30 minutes that I was there. And I want you to know, I was embarrassed for our culture. Because our young people are getting vomited on with incredible sexual imagery. But you know what they don't know? In this massive amount of data on sex, they know nothing about love. Because you know what? Love takes too long. You have to think about it. You have to explore it. You have to really be wise to know it. The pace of our life is quickened to a frenzy. Everybody feels like they're in a sprint today. Daytimers are packed with unbelievable opportunities. They all seem good. We know a lot of people and no one at the same time. We're going everywhere and nowhere at the same moment. Fast food, fast life. There's little opportunity to make sense of it all. So what we do is we become drive-through philosophers, right? And we take these little sound bites to keep us motivated, so to speak, in life. You know, a few years ago, with all that was breaking around us, it was, don't worry, be happy. That became a philosophy of life, you know? You just kind of, quesarai, don't worry about it. It's going to be okay. Just be happy. Well, maybe. Then Nike comes along and they tell us to just do it. Don't worry about it. Just do it. Just get it done. Bury your head down and go for it. Then there are those who in the business community to motivate their employees. They bring in motivational speakers and it's see at the top. That becomes the reason to work hard and work at it every day with excellence. Now, we don't know what the top is. And when you get to the top, we don't know what it's going to be like or whether we're going to like it there. And as I'm going to show you in just a moment, for those at the top, it's not what it was supposed to be. But it makes a good soundbite philosophy to live by. We talk about family values, but we never define them. We say life is a choice. Okay, but what do I choose? But it, it makes me feel like I'm in control, so to speak. There's a bumper sticker around town you see on the back of the teenagers' vehicles. It just says, it's all good. That's the philosophy of life. It's all good. Statements like these are to the soul what a cheeseburger and fries are to the body. High in fat, low in real content what they are but they give you a lift for the moment they give you enough energy to make it through the day and make you feel like you've made some sense out of your life well I want you to know Solomon opens the book of Ecclesiastes addressing three sound bites that pervade every culture in every age and over each of these sound bites he issues what I call a Prozac pronouncement all right now you know the antidepressant Prozac the reason I say that is because when you find out what he says to these sound bites you need a Prozac. Because you want to get depressed at what he says about life under the sun. 
Now, the first of these Prozac pronouncements deals with the quality of life. You know, you see these advertisements for cruises and those kind of things, and there's one that's a Jamaican vacation, and you see the surf and the sound and the great food and the beach and all that, and at the end, this man says, life is good. Well, now let's just ponder that for a moment. Is life really good? Is that true? You see, good, if you want to think about it as a philosopher, is a distinctly moral term. And if life is good, why are people murdered? Why is there Bosnia? Why is there a Liberia? Why is there child abuse? Why is there hunger? Why is there greed? Why is there racism? Why is there oppression? You know, it's interesting that when Jesus one day was called good teacher, as he's walking along the way, he spun around to the bystander who called him good teacher, and he snapped at him. He said, why do you call me good? There's no one good but God alone. You see, goodness is a term that cannot be substantiated philosophically by this world. It can only be substantiated in a higher realm by God. You see, if Solomon were doing today's commercials on cruises and vacations, he wouldn't end with a smile, life is good. He would probably smile and say, life, life sometimes has pleasure. And if you come to Jamaica, and your plane actually makes it here, <laughs> and if you don't get burnt on the beach, and if somebody doesn't steal your wallet, and you don't have a fight with your wife, then life is sometimes pleasurable. That would be a more accurate philosophical appraisal. So take a Prozac, because life is not good, he would say. It's not. It's full of pain and tragedy and upheaval. And people, as you watch them closely, live for, like John said, the lust of their eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life, which is all passing away in this terminal universe when the sun finally goes to nothing. Life is not good. That's why he begins in verse 2. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. He uses it three times, which in Hebrew is the superlative. You know, if you use anything three times in Hebrew, you're, you're trying to make a scene. It's like the uh, mom, the young mom I see at the, uh, the restaurant and her kid's getting a little out of control. And she says, no. You know, he wants something else or he wants to play with a knife and fork. But if she really wants to make a scene with him, she goes, no, no, no. <laughs> right? Three times. When Isaiah entered the holy place in Isaiah 6 and he saw the angels and he walked into the presence of God, you know what was echoing? All around this cathedral of worship wasn't the word holy. No, here's what you heard. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Three times. You know why? Because the angels wanted to make a scene about the holiness of God. Well, Solomon wants to make a scene about the vanity of life. Vain, vain, vain. You eliminate God from the equation and think about it for a while, and it becomes the theater of the absurd if you want to think long and hard about it. Meaningless. That's why Carl Sandburg, the great poet, here in America said, life is like peeling an onion. The more you peel, the more you want to cry. I like what the English writer Matthew Arnold wrote in his poem, The Rugby Chapel. 
which is a poem that expresses well Solomon's opening pronouncement of vanity. He said, most men eddy about. Some of you fishermen, just eddy about, paddle about. Here and there, eat and drink, chatter and love and hate. Gather and squander. Are raised aloft, are hurled in the dust. Striving blindly, accomplishing nothing. And then they die. Life is not good. Not in the ultimate sense, under the sun. If you really think about it long enough, you begin to discover its emptiness. And so you have to live by a soundbite and grab for all the gusto you can. Because that's all that's going to make it through the day. Under the sun. Second Prozac pronouncement deals with another phrase when people say, well, life's getting better. Solomon say life is not getting better and better. You hadn't really thought about life if you believe that. He says life is pretty much monotonous if you think about it. He expresses that starting in verse 3. Look, he says, What advantage does a man have in all his work, which he does under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun sets, and hastening to its place, it just does it again. Blowing towards the south and turning towards the north, the wind continues swirling along. And on its circular courses, the wind returns. All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the places where the rivers flow, there they flow again. All things, all things are wearisome. The life, this life, Solomon says, is not evolving like people want us to believe. Life, if you really study it, if you're really a good historian and archaeologist and sociologist and so on, is revolving over and over again into the same old circular patterns. Elton John was right when he sang in The Lion King, the circle, the circle of life. You see, the rivers empty into the sea, but they never fill it up because there's a circular motion about evaporation and condensation. The winds blow around the globe. The earth circles in its monotonous regularity around the sun. And one generation follows another for what? You build your kingdom. You become dust. You're forgotten. And then it starts all over again. It's the circle of life. In all that man has done and worked for, what has changed? You know what the answer to that is? Just the toys. That's all that's changed. Man's pursuits, if you read from historians. Man's passions, if you watch them for any generation. His faults and his end. They all remain the same. The guy at the state fair is the guy that's got it right. You know the one that tries to call you in to play his game? What does he say? Round and round he goes. And where it stops, nobody knows. That's life. That's the circle of life. And it may be wondrous to the Disney folks, but to a wise man trying to extract meaning out of life, such repetitive recycling of the same old, same old, same old is wearisome if you want to get meaning out of life. See, life is not getting better and better. It's going round and round. And old man river, she just keeps rolling along. Who needs a Prozac here right now? I can look on your face. See, I knew this would do this to you. 
And so we have them. The ushers are going to have one for you as you leave. And then, I, and then I've reserved a restaurant where we're all going to have a big old chocolate pie with ice cream. And we're going to get the adrenaline flowing and the nerves shaking. And we're going to feel life is good, right? Well, there's a third pronouncement here, a Prozac pronouncement that's popular through every age. And that's the one where people say, hey, it's a new day. Solomon says, no, it's not a new day. Look at verse 9. He says, that which has been is that which will be. And that which has been done is that which will be done, so there's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one might say, see, this is new? <laughs> and he kind of laughs, I think, and says, already has existed for ages, which were before us. If you think there's something new, then verse 11 says, then you just don't remember the past. You're not a student of yesterday. On page two of Friday's uh, edition of the Arkansas Democrat Gazette, there was a lead article that was entitled, Exhibit of Yesterday's News Eerily Familiar to Today's News. And what it was, it, they've gone back 300 years and looked at news items that we reported daily because so many of us think, gosh, all we ever get is bad news. You know what the news was back in 1650? Well, here's one of the articles. Hellish murderer committed by a French midwife on the body of her husband. Here's another big article. Enoch Evans cuts off the head of his mother and his brothers. Neighbors are quoted as saying, he was a strange man who kept to himself. <laughs> yeah, we know that guy, don't we? He's in the paper every day. He lives up in Montana. There's no remembrance of earlier things. I remember when I was working on my master's thesis, I was doing a, a work in 1 Timothy comparing it to the social conditions around Rome, the Roman Empire for women because 1 Timothy deals with a lot of feminine statements. And so I was trying to compare those two. You know what I found out? I found out that feminism is not new. It's not a new 20th century social phenomenon. Any person who knows history, and I was just discovering this as a young man, it's just a replay of a replay of a replay of a replay of other equality movements. And you know what? If you don't want to know where it leads, history's going to tell you. I thought abortion was something that just suddenly appeared in the 20th century. Then I started reading the poet Juvenal of the first century and other Roman historians, and I found them saying, and I quote, that women kept themselves encumbered to pursue careers by the abortionist potion. That's in the first century A.D. There's nothing new under the sun. We like the sound bite. It makes us feel good that it's a new day. It lifts our depression. It inspires some hope. And it gives us a lift, lift for a little while. But Solomon says, I hate to tell you this, but that's junk food. That's modern day propaganda based on fantasy, not fact. The reality is, is nothing's new. It's the same old, same old. Rudyard Kipling expressed it this way. The crafts that we call modern and the crimes that we call new, John Bunyan had them typed and filed in 1682. Well, Solomon wrestled with life. And I want to show you how he wrestled with life. He wanted to know the meaning of life beyond God. Was there something beyond God in this world? And so he tried to live life at the edge at the extreme. And he did so 
so as to report, not like a philosopher in an ivory tower, but he wanted to do that by putting himself personally into these pursuits to see, is there any other meaning in life besides God? And that's really what he tries to do. Look at verse 12. He says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has ever been done under heaven. I want you to look at the word seek and explore in verse 13. The word seek means to do rigorous research. That's what he's done. The word explore means to examine all sides of things. And he didn't do that just as a laboratory technician. Solomon did it the old-fashioned way. He got personally involved. He researched every pursuit by himself. Getting involved in that pursuit, he pushed every category as far as it could go in order to know everything about life. What it means and what it doesn't. So he didn't talk about materialism or do studies on materialism per se, or poles, what he did is he became the ultimate materialist. He experienced it. He became the ultimate academic, the ultimate hedonist, and pleasure-seeking. You want to know about sex? He can tell you everything about it. You want to know about acquiring? He can tell you everything about acquiring. He was the ultimate escapist. We just read a moment ago, he used wine and explored what all of that meant to escape into another realm of cyberspace through alcohol. He did it all. He was the ultimate workaholic. He built everything to the place that he had so much, even the Queen of Sheba couldn't take it all in. He did it all first-hand research. He pressed every pursuit of life to the extreme, and in that sense, he became our Flint McCullough of life. Now, how many of you know who Flint McCullough is? Let me see your hands. Man, that's pitiful. That is really pitiful. I thought some of you would remember... Flint McCullough from Wagon Train. Remember the old series? Old Flint McCullough, Ward Bond, you know, Wagon's Hole. But to get Wagon's Hole, he had to have Flint, the scout. He was handsome, debonair. All the girls loved him back in the 50s. And he was out there exploring the realms of the extreme to find a way for the Wagon Train to make sure there was safety. And I want you to know, that's what Solomon is in the Bible. He's the Flint McCullough of life. He's the one who's gone out ahead of all of us and done it in ways and in proportions that none of us could never even imagine. He's done it all in advance. And if we were all at Chili's today after this depressing sermon, and we were sitting around talking about it, but Solomon was there, and we were talking about pleasure, or having that new house we are going to build, or if I could just get that promotion and get to the top and be president. Solomon would sit there and he'd take a sip of coffee and he'd say, been there, done that. Man, if I could just marry this girl, or boy, if we could just go out partying and do this, or I could take this, this trip around the world. Solomon said, yeah, been there, done that too. Done it all. I pushed it all to the extreme to see if I could squeeze meaning and answer the question, what is the meaning of life under the sun? I've done that all. You know what I found? It's verse 14. I've seen all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. In fact, he goes on in verse 15 and he says, you know, what is crooked cannot be straightened. What he means by that is, you can't, you can't change this hard reality. You'd like to straighten it out and say, no, this life, I could, I could find ultimate satisfaction somewhere in this life. He says, you can't, you can't do that. It's crooked and it can't be straightened. And you know what else? Verse 15 says, and what is lacking in this life cannot be made up. This life, 
comes short. That's the reality. Under the sun, there's no real meaning in any of it. I've done it, and I want you to know about it. Because I've had all of it. And what I found, it's empty. The power is empty. The possessions are empty. The relationships cannot give you everything you wanted, no matter how much you're in love right now. You can't squeeze ultimate satisfaction out of any of it. The best life can do, listen, listen, the best life can do is to keep delivering to you the empty promise that if you have something else, then you'll be happy. But the curse is, is when you get it. I remember talking with a young wrestler. He had just graduated from college and he was telling about his story. When he was five years old, his dad wanted him to be a wrestler and put him in classes and trained him. And his whole life, four or five hours a day, he trained to be a wrestler. His dad wanted him to be the best wrestler. All his life he lived for that. Every time he won the local meet or the state meet, it was a one more gigantic thrill up the ladder to get to the top for the ultimate fulfillment. And here's what he told me. He looked at me and he said, you know, my senior year at Oklahoma State, I won the NCAA wrestling title. And the excitement of it lasted as long as it took to clear the arena. And it was over. And life was back to the same old, same old. I befriended a, a man several years ago who was kind of a real little rock playboy. And in fact, his lifestyle and his sexual escapades were legendary around this city. Rich, single, handsome, plenty of money, things to do, very sophisticated. As he told me, a woman, any night, anything your mind could imagine. And where did it lead him? Well, ultimately it led him to a hotel room in Little Rock where he put a gun in his mouth. That's where it led him. Because to have it all is to find out it's empty. Get it all. And you realize you have nothing. It's vain. I've met numerous entrepreneurs who as a young man wanted to have a certain place at a certain time with a certain income and they've achieved it far sooner than they ever expected and far more than they ever thought they would ever have. And then they get it. And you know what a lot of them do? They quit. They quit. You know why they quit? Because the reality of success spoiled the illusion of the quest. Because the quest promised more than it could ever give. That's why. How many Super Bowls will Jerry Jones have to win before he doesn't even show up to receive it anymore? Because he's realized that ultimately, that too is empty. You see, this is the nature of life under the sun. It's what it's all about. And it can get depressing. Now there are three ways you can address your depression and the emptiness of life. You can go out with me to eat afterwards. No, that's not one. First, you can do this. You can quit thinking about it. You can. You can quit thinking about it. And this is what most people do. They bury their head. They busy their schedule. They keep their empty hopes alive. alive and they plow ahead full steam living on these high-fat sound bites. Just do it. It's all good. That's one way of dealing with it. Secondly, you can try to think your way out of it. Solomon tried to do that, and he tells us that at the end of chapter 1, verse 16, he says, I said to myself, Behold, I have magnified increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my mind has observed a wealth of knowledge and wisdom. 
and I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, and I realized that this also is striving after wind. Because in much wisdom, there is much grief. And increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. Had a good friend, still have a good friend, H.D. McCarty in Fayetteville, first pastor of a church I really enjoyed. And uh, when I was a young man, he, we were walking out one day. This is one of the little sound bites I'll never forget from H.D. He said to me, he said, Robert, you know what is wrong with being spiritually mature? And I thought that was a good twist of a question. I said, no, what is it? He said, you have to live with the immature. And it's painful. You know, think about it. If you grow in wisdom and understanding and you really get mature and you watch what most people spend their life on, what's, what's, what's nagging them, what's making them excited or sad, sometimes they look so pitiful in light of the bigger schemes of life. And you think, is that what's upsetting you? Or is that what you're living for? Or is that how you're going to act? See, there's a curse in being mature. You have to live with the immature. And any parent knows that, right? <laughs> Because every parent has to mix maturity with immaturity. And you know what? It hurts. It hurts. When you watch your child do something, and you go, been there, done that. You know what is wrong with having a wealth of wisdom and knowledge about life? It's that you know the truth about it. That's what's wrong with it. And that is why Solomon is telling us about life under the sun. Well, let me give you a final option, and I'm finished. It's an otherworldly option that's not going to be found until we get midway through this book at different points and then at the end. But you can embrace what I call the wisdom of faith. The wisdom of faith. And I'm only going to look at one of those this morning, and I want you to turn over to Colossians chapter 2. And let's end here. But to me, if Solomon, and you can write this down, there's, at the bottom of your outline there's four things, but I'm just giving you one. You can write it real big, it's this. The wisdom of faith knows that life is not found in extreme living. The wisdom of faith knows that life is not found in extreme living, but in an exalted person. Notice how Paul writes in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of this world, rather than according to Christ. For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in Him you have been made complete, and He is head over all rule. And authority. You know what's interesting? Life makes no sense under the sun devoid of a transcendent God. It makes no sense. Now, you can press it to the full, and Solomon's already been there, done that, and you know what he's telling you? He's saying, listen, you're not going to like what you get, even if you get it all, and you leave God out. And I want you to know, there's some of you here today, that as we've talked through these different philosophies, you've been sitting there, and there's been part of you who've never connected with Christ. And you're saying, you know, I don't know about the Christ part. But the life under the sun part, He's got right. If you're there, I want you to consider, please, consider the wisdom 
of faith. It's not been around for thousands of years for nothing. But it's what connects what is with what will be. And for those of us who are in Christ here today, and maybe your life this last few weeks or months has felt painful, I want you to know as we go through, this book is going to offer us a lot on how to enjoy life. By not expecting too much out of life, but at the same time understanding that all of what life is, is here for us to enjoy. But we have to have a compass. We have to have a guide. We have to have a rule book. Life is for the taking. And this life makes a world of sense if we live life not under the sun, but above it. Let's pray together. Father, as difficult as these philosophical kind of approaches are, I know that the people who are here today hear the painful reality of truth. And yet, not all truth is painful. In fact, the real truth is liberating. Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. It will give you a right perspective on every pursuit of life where it can be enjoyed in the way that it was meant to be enjoyed. And yet the real joy goes even beyond. I pray that you would help us hear that. I pray that you would bring us in these next weeks in Ecclesiastes to that well of life-giving water. And I pray that our lives will be shaped by the most pertinent questions of our world. And those are the philosophy questions. Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? We thank You for this, Jesus, and we thank You for our day of worship of You. And we pray in Your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.